You're listening to the Monocle Daily, first broadcast on the 4th of November 2022 on Monocle 24. Is Ukraine on the verge of retaking her son? The final days of campaigning in the US midterms and spiking food prices compel some UK households to forage further than previously. I'm Andrew Muller. The Monocle Daily starts now. Hello and welcome to the Monocle Daily, coming to you from our studios here at Midori House in London. I'm Andrew Muller. It's Friday, but it's less of an in-house daily than usual, with only Chris Chermak failing to file his excuses in time. But we will have the latest from Ukraine, we'll meet the food critic Grace Dent, and we'll speak to Zarifa Ghaffari about her extraordinary memoir recalling her time as Afghanistan's youngest female mayor. Stay tuned, all that and more coming up right here on the Monocle Daily. This is the Monocle Daily. I'm Andrew Muller, and we begin today in Ukraine. In the eight months and change since Russia embarked on its 72-hour blitz to conquer the country, Russia has managed to capture precisely one major Ukrainian city, Kherson, home pre-war to about 280,000 people and the regional capital of the oblast of the same name, one of four Russia claims to have annexed. However, Kherson's current status is uncertain. Last month, the Russian-installed municipal authorities ordered citizens to leave and there are now some signs that Russia's military may also be preparing to withdraw. I'm joined with more by Victoria Vizhnishka of the Independent Anti-Corruption Commission. Uh, she joins us from Kiev. Um, Victoria, as far as you know, what is the latest from the city? We've heard these reports of a 24-hour curfew, uh, President Vladimir Putin of Russia telling everybody to leave. Um, what do we know for certain? Well, you know, I tried to come up with some word, maybe a sentence that would describe everything that is happening there right now. And honestly, the best one I have so far is that Russians are up to something. And this is period. This is this is uh, this is the all that we have so far, because we've seen a lot. We've seen, as you've said, uh, that they've been encouraging citizens to leave, to evacuate, as they call it. Um, but they've been doing that for more than a month now. So it's not a big of a surprise. Um, they also allegedly are moving their troops on the left bank of the river. But once again, this is something that we've seen for a few weeks now. Uh, so it's not a surprise either. And now there is a curfew or <laughs> there is no curfew, by the way, because um, as of now, we've seen three di- different statements. First one announces the curfew. Um, another says it is fake. And the third one validates the second statement while saying that um, curfew is active since the very beginning of the whole special military operations. So basically, like, what's the problem with you citizens? So I would boldly attempt that if we talk about the curfew, uh, we need to interpret that as like some yet another signal of lack of coordination between the occupiers, because it basically seems like somebody slipped the info to someone and they decided to go public with it immediately and later found out that nobody actually required them to say so, say it out loud, um, and it's not even a decision yet. So they literally had to find like some options on how to get out of the situation verbally. But um, whether or not Russians are messing with the information or they're actually, once again, uh, fail to cooperate properly, it is still unclear how exactly it may or may not affect the civilians because 
this is uh, of a bigger concern for us here. Um, as I've said before, Russians are definitely up to something. And while well, mostly people tend to believe it is, uh, it is the retreat they're preparing for, there are also still some chances that they are planning something different. And in that case, back to my first comment, I would say that Russians may, up, may be up to no good at all, even if uh, withdrawing. Do we have a sense, though, of how big a priority retaking the city is uh, for Ukraine? It would obviously be a huge uh, strategic accomplishment and a morale boost ahead of what may be quite a difficult winter. Yes, definitely. It's very important for Ukrainians because, well, first of all, um, we have been having a successful Kharkiv counteroffensive, uh, which was um, which was possible under the veil of so-called uh, Southern counteroffensive. People were really expecting Ukraine to move deep deeper into her own region, and it did not happen the way. Uh, it actually people thought it actually would be. So uh, Ukrainians actually a dream of taking uh, her son back for specific morale reasons. So it's very important for Ukrainians on that specific level. And if we talk about the Ukrainian government um, and the infra infrastructure in general, um, her son region, while not so economically important uh, as, for example, some other parts of the southern region, um, it is still is vital for Ukrainian infrastructure. Um, in particular, as it is, um, as it allows Ukraine to control the Crimean water supply. So, uh, for us, taking Crimea back, uh, taking Kherson back, is a further step for taking Crimea back as well. So, uh, definitely, it is very important. However, it should be done precisely with consideration on um, like the geography, uh, geography of the region, the um, sophisticated Russian presence there as well. So these uh, things should be uh, accounted for and um, Ukrainian government knows about it, Ukrainian military knows about it, so they take the steps according, um, according to, the, um, to the environment that we have so far. You mentioned earlier these large-scale evacuations or possibly more accurately deportations that have been going on from Kherson. Do we know how many people are involved and perhaps more to the point where they've gone? Uh, we know some estimates. So Russians saying that they've evacuated, and yes, it is indeed a deportation, so we have to like uh, think of that in terms uh, of this specific word. So they've um, deported at least as they say, uh, 60,000 of people uh, from Kherson only. Um, but in reality, according to Ukrainian officials, uh, this number should be no bigger than 5,000 of people. So it's way lesser um, than, than, than the Russians actually report. At the same time, um, as I come from this region, I also talk to the locals and they say that Russians are kind of actively trying to make people uh, flee. And if people do not really want to, as they say, evacuate, um, they are trying to oppress them in some ways. So locals have to literally um, hide, I would say, from uh, Russians, from Russian soldiers, from uh, collaborators, because they they afraid that they will be taken by force. So we can expect that some percentage of people that um, that fled, uh, they did so not because they really wanted to, but rather because they were made to. Uh, you mentioned earlier, or we mentioned earlier, that you join us from Kiev. Can you give us some sense of what the city is like now? It's it's dark, I guess. It's evening. But, but how dark is it? Are any of the lights back on? 
uh, it's pretty dark. So you could understand um, today I had at least two blackouts and one uh, emergency, an emergency one as well. So um, during the day I had like 10 hours without electricity at all. It means also without internet, both Wi-Fi obviously and also without internet connection, uh, mobile connection as well. So um, it's pretty dark. It's pretty um, in, in, in a lack of like in, in a very, um, I would say, in a very isolated uh, information space, because as you do not have access to the outside world, you are also isolated uh, from the very understanding of what is happening in some other regions, in some um, other cities, maybe even like you can literally expect that uh, when you have electricity back, some counteroffensive happens somewhere. So, um, yes, it is pretty dark. It is pretty um, uncomfortable to say the least, but nevertheless, people feel uh, like this is not a big issue for them, like uh, on on the level of morale. So uh, while still sitting in the dark, while still using pretty limited amount of um, electric softwares and stuff like that, um, people still feel like, hey, this is not big of a problem. We can we can endure. Victoria Vizhnevska in Kiev. Thank you very much for joining us. You're listening to the Daily. The same stories, the same views dominate global news coverage. But The Globalist goes beyond the noise to unpack what's really happening, to find fresh perspectives and considered voices in current affairs, business and much more. She was doing this all on her own, and I think that she's been a real inspiration to journalists around the world, particularly where there are tough areas of freedom of speech. I think that one of the mantras that's going to come out of Washington in the Biden administration going forward is unity, but unity with accountability. The Globalist, live every weekday at 8 a.m. Zurich time, 7 a.m. in London, 2300 in Los Angeles, on Monocle 24, or wherever you get your podcasts. On Tuesday, Americans, well, on usual form, less than half of those eligible will vote in midterm elections. If polls are any guide, these are likelier than not to return control of the U.S. House of Representatives to the Republican Party, and the Senate is a coin flip. In normal circumstances, this would merely mean a dismal and frustrating next couple of years for a given Democratic president, but these last few years have seen the Republican Party meander a distance from normal. More than half of GOP candidates running on Tuesday are subscribers to Donald Trump's delusions of a fixed 2020 election. Well, I'm joined now by our Washington, D.C. correspondent, Chris Chermack. Um, Chris, as regular listeners will know, you were based here for a, a very, very long time and you have only recently returned to the United States. Before we talk about the elections, how has it been for you personally? What sense are you getting of how the country has changed, if at all, since you were last there? Oh, my. How much time do you have, Andrew? <laughs> About seven minutes. <laughs> uh, so, I, I mean, this country has obviously changed dramatically since I was last living here properly anyway, which was about 10 years ago. And yes, I've been reflecting a lot on that, frankly, just because of the fact that when I left, I was covering the elections of Barack Obama, for example, and his time in office. And I also got to see him uh, one more time in this election as well. Um, 
And it's just quite striking how much, of course, the issues have changed since then. The mood of the country has changed since then. Um, but what I will say at the same time, uh, what, what I find almost most interesting about this election when I look at it from that long-term perspective is when we talk about it, right, on a show like this, when the international listeners are, 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 are paying attention – the focus is everything you described, the, the, the trends of the Republican Party, the, the threats to democracy, the election deniers, all of that, all of that which has changed compared to when I was here 10 years ago. And yet when you speak to people here on the ground, when you cover the election, when you look at the media, um, the coverage of the election from the media and also the people in general, it just isn't really that much about that, strikingly, to be to be perfectly frank, Andrew. It is more about the same issues that we had 10 years ago in many ways. It is about the economy, particularly. And, you know, 2008, when Barack Obama was elected, was also about the economy. That is the overriding issue. Inflation. What are we going to do? How are we going to pay our bills? That is taking precedence, especially in this last these last few weeks of this campaign, and by comparison, therefore, it, it's it's this you know strange thing to say, Andrew, that most people they still they don't necessarily even trust that their vote will be counted, but they're voting anyway on the economy, and they don't care that much about the threat to democracy that the rest of the world cares about. I'm not wishing at all to belittle those concerns about paying bills, paying mortgages, keeping a job, etc. Those are all obviously incredibly important, well, let's face it, to everybody. But when you dig into that, do they not sound at all concerned, not so not so much about threats to democracy as such, a big deal though those may seem, but the fact that they may be voting for people who are demonstrably unmoored from reality and therefore probably not all that likely to help with the economy either. Uh, you know, that's a good question, Andrew, but my sense, to be to be perfectly honest, is no. I mean, for example, if you want to just take it from a simple uh, point of, of the polls and opinion polls, if you look at something like the economy, there is generally more of a trust that the Republicans will handle the economy better than Democrats do. So that is the very fundamental, if you will, um, polling that, 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 that shows why Democrats are struggling in this election, as you described at the top, most likely going to lose the House of Representatives, maybe just about hold on to the Senate, although that is unlikely as well. That is the perception. And I think what strikes me in that sense, too, about this election, Andrew, is that when you look at something like the economy, yes, we're talking in this election about many issues that, frankly, politicians don't have that much control over when it comes to inflation. This is caused by the war in Ukraine, the pandemic, rising prices, all of that. And yet that is what voters are focusing on, and that's what they want to punish uh, the politicians that are in office on. They are less focused, if you will, on the things that are actually in politicians' hands, even even what you're talking about, whether they are going to trust the outcome of an election or not. That simply is not playing as well. And, and for, to be perfectly honest, Andrew, I don't quite know how to describe that. I, I find that quite striking here, but I don't know what to make of it, if you will. It, it is a very hard sort of dichotomy. People do not trust the election process here at this point, and yet they're going out and vote, and they're not voting based on, on democracy itself. 
Well, let's talk a bit about where you are now and to the extent, if at all, that it reflects the nationwide picture. I know uh, local races in the United States can be uh, very self-contained and very quirky things. Absolutely, yes. So, Andrew, I am currently in the heart of Pennsylvania in a town called Bethlehem, Pennsylvania. And it is it is really sort of the swing district of swing districts, if you will. Pennsylvania is a swing state. It is the one that will be watched just about most closely, I would say, on Tuesday for which way it'll go. It's a race between the lieutenant governor, John Fetterman, um, and a TV personality in, in Mehmet Oz, Dr. Mehmet Oz for the Republicans. And this is a race that everyone is watching. Whichever way this goes, there is a good chance the Senate will go. Whoever wins the Senate uh, or this race for the Senate uh, will potentially, you know, this will signal which party is going to control uh, the Senate nationally. So it's a very important race. Bethlehem within that is in Lehigh County, Lehigh Valley, and this is a very important swing district. And I've been speaking to a local state candidate here, for example, as well. And yes, there are a lot of quirky things about this race. John Fetterman, and I I did a little report on this about a month ago, listeners might remember, but John Fetterman is a candidate who has struggled with health issues. He had a stroke back in May, um, and he is still recovering from that. That has been a big focus of his campaign. But he's also in many ways almost the Democrats' answer to Donald Trump. He's a populist. He always wears a hoodie. Uh, whenever he's out campaigning, uh, he speaks about these kind of bread and butter issues, and he's he's talked about himself as not being uh, from Washington, not part of the establishment, all of that. So in that sense, I think it also shows this interesting dynamic in this race that Democrats, despite having... Uh, the bully pulpit, despite being in the White House with Joe Biden, even Democrats like John Fetterman at this point are kind of running away from Washington and the White House. They're positioning themselves as anti-establishment. If anything, interestingly enough, in these last few weeks of this particular race in Pennsylvania, it's been the Republican Dr. Mehmet Oz who has swung to the center and said, I'm the guy who's going to get along with everyone. I'm going to be the compromise candidate. Vote for me. John Fetterman is too extreme. So (laughs) I don't know what that says about the country, but it is just very interesting being here uh, in Pennsylvania. And as I say, at the same time, when you speak to voters here in Pennsylvania, it really is still about those bread and butter issues. The economy comes up. The economy is the key issue that people are voting on. That is by far in the last few weeks, the issue that voters care about, their local economy, but higher prices, inflation, how that's impacting them. And to some extent, then other issues like abortion. One, we were just, uh, I was door knocking or following a candidate door knocking. One person, for example, raised abortion as something that she struggles with as well. So you do get those kinds of topics, and that's that's the kind of issue Democrats have wanted to focus on in this race. But most people, the economy, the economy, the economy. Chris Chermack in Pennsylvania, thank you for joining us. You're listening to The Daily on Monocle 24. Now, nose-to-tail eating is making a comeback in the UK, it says here, in the face of the cost-of-living crisis. One top supermarket chain says straightened Brits are buying more fish heads and spam. Beef shin, ox cheek and lamb neck sales have also seen a boost. It's like the 40s never finished. Monocle's Laura Kramer caught up with the restaurant critic Grace Dent about the changing food trends and how they're impacting the hospitality industry. (laughs) 
in the 1950s and 1960s in Britain, that was very, very common for people to eat these things, tripe and innards and all the wobbly bits. And then the supermarkets arrived and, you know, especially for a lot of working class people, it kind of said, you don't have to do this anymore. Like you can have this pre-packaged meat at a price and it's a steak. And these things began to represent luxury. For the last, say, 10, 12 years in British cooking, we've tried to uh, make offal and, uh, yeah, the cheaper, stranger cuts of meat much more fashionable. What I am seeing now is people suddenly going, you know, what can we do with liver? What can we do with kidneys? You know, these are people, Generation X, maybe like slightly younger, maybe slightly older. Their parents ate that and then moved away from it and said, I don't want to do it anymore. And we didn't do it either. But I think in the future, this is it. I think we have to get over the ick factor about a lot of these things. Of course, nose-to-tail eating is common in many countries in Eastern Europe, Asia, Africa. I'm originally Romanian. Tripe soup is one of the best things in the world. I believe you. Tripe soup must be lovely. But it's just the, you know, the 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 way it sounds to these to untrained ears, you know. So what we, you could have have a delicious cullen skink with, you know, beautiful fish in it or tripe soup. Now one of them sounds delicious and one of them doesn't. What are the restaurant trends you're seeing? The hospitality industry has had to overcome the devastating impact of the pandemic, and now it's the cost of living crisis. In terms of your food writing, how are you approaching reviews now? You know, I can't say that we're not in a really a real pickle at the moment. I see it every day. I'm seeing closures. I'm seeing real anxiety. Uh, amongst my friends in the restaurant industry, how they're going to get through. I think the run-up to Christmas may party and may carry people along. I think January, February, March is going to be really, really tough. This last weekend, I reviewed a restaurant which was £15 a head. And some people were happy. And some people quite rightfully said, well, if they're managing to do a menu for that amount of time, for that amount of money rather, how kind is this to the staff? How kind is it to the environment? How kind? I think that what's going to happen over the next few months is a lot of questioning about the value of eating out in general. The good news, I would say, is we have gone through these dark times continuously over the last few years. And what always prevails is that people want to eat out. They may shy away from it for a little while, but then the storm blows over and what they want is to sit down with their friends and look them in the eye and share even the most humble and cheap of meal. People will always want restaurants. So if there's any good news, it's that. I wanted to also ask you about your podcast because it's a very unique setup and it high profile guests come to your personal kitchen. What can people expect from the fourth season of Comfort Eating? We can expect a real array of celebrities revealing the thing that they eat behind closed doors that nobody actually really admits. That snack they cobble together when no one's looking. I don't want to hear about their celebrity diet plan and I don't want to hear about the posh restaurant that they got taken to by their manager. What I want to know is the thing that they're eating when nobody's looking. What you can expect is more of of me in an absolute 
pickle trying to get my house tidy for celebrities turning up because it's the most exposing thing I think that a human being can do is run a podcast from their own their own living room uh, because there's always a moment about 20 minutes before the taxi arrives where you're just flying around chasing your own cats around the room <laughs> making your loved ones go and hide in other parts of the, the house so you often have to dispose of family members who want to fangirl the guest. So between your writing and the podcast, what is your late night go-to comfort food, Grace? Okay, I'm one of those bores who about air fryers. And I and I'm sorry, please, no, no, don't run away, right? <laughs> I got an air fryer, and what I found is that you can make the most glorious toasted sandwiches. So what you do is you take anything out of the fridge that needs eaten. You put it between two pieces of bread. You butter the outsides of the bread and then you put it down and then you just put it into the air fryer. It's basically a Franken sandwich that comes out <laughs> and then you eat it all and you lie in a pair of trousers that are just um, unbuttoned at the top. That was Grace Dent speaking to Monocle's Laura Kramer. You're listening to The Daily on Monocle 24. Now, it's remarkable enough to hold actual political office in one's mid-twenties. It verges on the incredible to accomplish this as a 20-something woman in the recent past of Afghanistan. Zarifa Ghaffari did it, however, appointed mayor of Maidan Shah, a town of 35,000 people in central Afghanistan in 2018. It was, to understate matters wildly, a challenge, not just because of how much needed to be done, but because of the determination of some to stop her from doing it. Ghaffari survived three assassination attempts. Her father was murdered in late 2020. Zarifa Ghaffari tells her extraordinary story in a new memoir, Zarifa, A Woman's Battle in a Man's World. She visited Midori House earlier, and we were joined from Istanbul by Monocle's Istanbul correspondent, Hannah Lucinda Smith, co-author of the book. I began by asking Zarifa why she had agreed to take on a job as daunting as mayor of Maiden Shah. Yeah, the only one biggest reason for me was in Afghanistan, there was always women subjected to be victim kind of. And so they were not going to these places where there was like lots of challenges mm. to challenge. And then the government was also not giving that challengeful jobs and responsibilities to women because they were like, she is a woman. She won't be ha able to handle it. Then I was like, OK, I just need to change this rule. And for that, it was important that I could join that office and I could shine. And then during all the periods of examination and then after nine months of not being able to enter my office, I realized that the fight for this position and this office became kind of a goal for me because I there was all people trying to take me down by putting just this title of my gender on mm. the top of discussion. So she's a young girl. She won't be able to do it. It's a technical office. She can't lead the that. It's a war-torn province. She won't resist there and she won't be able to be longer there. So looking to that all, I was like, if I do one day job in government as well, that's where I want to do it because it was for me so important to prove these old people wrong. And I'm so happy I did that because I worked there for three years so happily. Hannah, I'll bring you in at this point with the simple question, how did the pair of you meet? 
Actually, I'd never kind of worked in Afghanistan before, but I had written a book before. And the agent, a lovely lady called Kelly, who I'd written that book with, approached me about almost exactly a year ago. And she said, listen, I've been introduced to this woman called Zarifa, and she's got this astounding story. She was the youngest mayor in Afghanistan. You know, she's at the time, Zarifa's only 27 years old. She's had to leave. She's now in Germany and she wants to write a book. Would you be interested in co-writing it with her? And I obviously, first of all, like Googled Zarif for a bit. And I was just like, <laughs> okay, wow. Yeah, this is quite a story. And, you know, for me, it really appealed because I wouldn't say that, you know, women's issues or doing just, you know, women-focused journalism is something that I necessarily want to do. But what really appealed to me about Zarifa is that her story isn't one of victimhood and she doesn't present herself as a victim. She is a fighter. And actually what she wants to talk about is her country, what's gone wrong with it historically, what's gone wrong with it politically, and how she can make it better. And, you know, for me, that was just a really, really compelling story. There is no getting around the whole quite a story aspect of it, because what you embarked upon was obviously going to be no small undertaking. You had survived. I kind of lost count of the hair raising episodes in the book, but I think you survived and were injured in two suicide bombings as a child while you were trying to get an education. As mayor, you survived several assassination attempts, extremely serious assassination attempts. And of course, two years ago, your father was murdered by people who presumably perceived you as their primary target. Throughout all of that, and I know it's an obvious question, but how do you keep persuading yourself this is worth the risk I'm running? Actually, I have a lovely definition. From my opinion and my aspect, it's like it's a lovely definition I have for the life. It's about we are alive to die one day. The death is the fact of life. That's mm. the clear fact. But if you live for a cause and if you die for a cause, that makes you part of history and memories of the everyone who knows and loves to follow your path. So that's what I, I believe more. And, and I believe it's so always so beautiful to die in a battlefield than just resting in a beautiful luxury bed of a hospital or maybe home. So for that, I was like really not always so worried about what's next. And this is the second thing. No change around the world happened without taking risk, without someone starting it from the first. So if I wanted to change something in Afghanistan, in that specific city, or at least to the beliefs of the people who are subjecting women to just home and kitchen and bedroom and maybe just giving birth to children. So I just needed to do it from some very different way and putting myself at the front. So every time I was saying I was facing an attack, Today morning, I face an attack in this road, in the same car, in same time. Tomorrow morning, same road, same time, I'm back. Because I wanted to show them, you know, this is not happening with me. I just, to resist, that's the beautiful way to show your power, to show how amazingly your people can believe you and to gain the trust of people. That was so important for me to be by their side and to not leave them and not abandon them. Hannah, is that right there the attitude you were hoping the book would channel? Because despite everything, it does come across as a, an almost counterintuitively optimistic and upbeat kind of read. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, this is the reason why also on a personal level, you know, spending time with Zarifa is just so 
uplifting and good fun. You know, it was really interesting. So the first time that we actually met was in December in Germany. And it was a dark time for Zarifa because she, you know, left Afghanistan three months earlier when the Taliban took over. And we sat and for two weeks, Zarifa told me her whole life story. And then I went away and started writing the book. And I, you know, I was feeling like something's not right with this. This narrative that ends in her leaving the country, you know, comes across as the story of defeat. It comes across the story of, you know, finally being a victim. And that still is not what Zarifa is. And so I was, let's say, overall, I was relieved when a couple of months later, Zarifa called me up and said, I'm going to go back to Afghanistan. I'm going to look the Taliban in the eye. And at first I thought, what on earth are you doing? And then I thought, great, this is actually what the narrative needs. Let's do it. And I think, you know, that was so important for the book because this is who Zarifa really is. She's not a woman who runs away. She's a woman who has faced so many challenges and so many threats and so many heartbreaks in her life and still bounces back. Well, on that thought, Zarifa, just finally, and this, I promise listeners, absolutely is not a spoiler. You do go back to Afghanistan earlier this year, which obviously was not a risk-free undertaking either. But how optimistic are you able to be about Afghanistan? Because I don't need to tell an Afghan that things can change really quickly, that history can take funny turns. Do you allow yourself to think of perhaps going back, not just to live in Afghanistan, but perhaps again to hold political office in Afghanistan? I never left my country forever. So there is no kind of discussion with me in my mind that should I go back or not. It's like, it's my home. I can go there wherever I want and whenever I want. And no one has a right to stop me because it's where I belong to. If I am today Azarifa Ghaffari and the world knows me or maybe there is a book and the story and everyone loves it or maybe shares it, it's because... I am belong to that country. So definitely the changes during all historical periods in Afghanistan, the up and downs in Afghanistan, mm. you know it better. It's, it's just coming like every 20, 25 years, like <laughs> once. So looking at that as well, I am going to get like kind of optimistic about changes. And the second thing is Zarifa Ghaffari is just one there are millions of this kind of Zarifas and living in that country. So I don't think Taliban or anyone else could deal with it longer than this. Zarifa Ghaffari and Hannah Lucinda Smith speaking to me earlier. Zarifa's book, Zarifa, A Woman's Battle in a Man's World, is out now and entirely recommended. That is all for this edition of the Monocle Daily. Thanks to our guests today, Victoria Vishnivska and Chris Chermak. Today's show was produced by Lillian Fawcett and researched by Emily Sands. Our sound engineer was Callum McLean with editing assistance from Adam Heaton. I'm Andrew Muller here in London. The Daily returns at the same time on Monday. Thanks for listening and have a great weekend. 